All right, so we're here with uh, Mike and Kit right now, and we're uh, doing our first podcast about the book called Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. A Common Sense Guide to the Economy. Fifth edition, I might add. Where'd you look at that? They added an extra chapter on this one, too, and we're really excited. We'll eventually get to that. Um, We're doing three chapters a week. And uh, this week, we're going to go over an overview of prices, uh, the rise and fall of businesses, and um, the role of profits and losses. Mike, do you want to say a couple things about yourself before we get started? Sure. So uh, my name is Mike Romero, recent graduate of University of California at Santa Barbara majored in economics, studied with Kit Ryan here, and we actually both graduated in spring of last year. Yeah, we did. All right, cool. Well, that's a quite the lineup you have there, Mike. Uh, well, I'm Kit Ryan, and I also graduated. Uh, I got an economics and accounting degree at UCSB. And now I'm at USD uh, pursuing my JD MBA. So uh, let's just get right into this. We'll start with the overview of prices. Great. So I, I'm going to start this off with a quote from that, from that chapter, chapter four. And it reads, What each individual wills is obstructed by everyone else. And what emerges is something that no one willed. So what each individual wills is obstructed by everyone else. And what emerges is something that no one willed. Now what yeah, do you... That, 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 uh, that's a really powerful quote. That's talking about uh, incentives versus goals, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's a really cool theme throughout this whole book, honestly, because it's, it's easy to get caught up in the whole, uh, you know, drama of everything being like, oh, we, uh, we're going to, you know, stop, uh, like, the housing shortage by setting a, uh, a price control so that uh, homeowners can't uh, rent out things at super high prices, but that's actually the opposite of what we really want them to be doing. Exactly. How unintended consequences occur. And just because um, a policy implementation may have humanitarian goals, you know, it may be intended to make housing affordable for low-income residents. As a result, which was no one's intention, there becomes a, uh, a shortage of housing. And often the people that are that these policies are geared to help the most are the ones that uh, ultimately receive the worst end of those consequences. Yeah, I think another uh, really important thing that he talks about that goes along with uh, with this concept that you're talking about is how he says that a lot of uh, ignorant people uh, attribute price rises to greed and uh, you know 
you hear that from almost anyone, honestly, uh, that doesn't have a good understanding about economics, because that's just an intuitive thing that you would think. But you know, actually, price rising is due to changes in circumstances, mm-hmm. and it's generally good for the economy as a whole. Yes, yes. And um, let's get into some of the the um, things that happen when we have price controls. Sure, so, sure. For example, uh, just as rent control reduces the supply of housing, so price controls and interest rates reduce the number of stores, pawn shops, local finance companies, and check casting agencies willing to operate in neighborhoods with higher costs. What he's talking about here is that uh, in low-income areas, because there's higher crime or um, just the fact that there's lower income in those areas, it's it's more expensive for businesses to operate there. Mm-hmm. And so when politicians put a price control on goods, then um, it's actually hurting the people at the in those neighborhoods because then businesses aren't willing to do business there. They decide that, oh, this is totally uh, not worth it for me. Uh, it, and it runs those businesses you know, out of business. And so the actual people living there have to pay for bus fares and go and um, purchase their goods elsewhere. Exactly. And um, speaking on high interest rates for some of those uh, financial lending institutions in low-income neighborhoods, often, you know, especially you'll hear politicians uh, talk about um, those agencies as wrongly price-gouging people and charging too high of interest rates. But you have to, you have to understand that they, they have to impose such a high interest rate in order to assume the risk of people that may not have a checking or savings account, maybe people that have bad credit, um, people that don't have a good track record of paying back loans, um, people that are in a lot of debt. In order to assume that risk and have these agencies lend money to them, which is actually good, you know, if those places weren't around, who are those people going to turn to? They, they can't go to uh, a normal financial uh, lending institution that someone with good credit can go to. The only place that they can turn to is a place such as this. And in order for that place to actually make a profit, because the truth of the matter is there's probably a good chunk of people that they lend to that end up not paying them back. And... The only way that they can stay in business is by charging such high interest rates in order to assume that risk. And so at the end of the day, these aren't bad people. These aren't people that have necessarily like evil motives. They're just trying to run a business just like any other organization. And, um, you know, they have to, they have to factor that in that, that high risk. Yeah, definitely. I agree with all of that. That is right on point. Um, I think another uh, way that politicians are basically um, trying to help out people, or maybe you know, 
we're assuming that they're trying to help out people, uh, but end up hurting people is, for example, whether when they subsidize or, um, which basically means like, okay, let's, let's give a base Medicare to everyone, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to pay X amount of dollars for, for everyone to have some sort of like medical insurance. Okay. And, uh, Thomas Sowell talks about how what this actually does is reduce the amount of uh, available spaces for actual serious injuries because when people have uh, when people don't have to pay for their own Medicare and they can go to the hospital and get care, they mm-hmm. do. And so he says uh, that people with minor ailments go to doctors when Medicare is either free or heavily subsidized by the government. And why farming, farmers receiving government subsidized water from irrigation projects grow crops requiring huge amounts of water, which they would never grow if they had to pay the full cost of water themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, that reminds me actually of something that you said last Sunday about how, uh, you know, a lot of the crops that we're making in California really should be made elsewhere mm-hmm. but because farmers are able to, uh, be subsidized with all this water and um, pay a much lower fee than they really should be paying. Mm-hmm. It's causing um, them to create these crops that are, uh, you know, for example, sugar. Sugar is easily made in other areas outside of the U.S. or even outside of California for that matter. Mm-hmm. We have farmers making them anyway just because there's these government policies allowing them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Um yeah, the, hearing that, it just, it all boils down to um, really in, incentives versus goals. Yeah. And um, I like how he, in the book, he gives a lot of examples of the Soviet Union. And um, I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to read a... Uh, a quotation from the book. It's pretty short, but I, I think it it's a good summary of his of his main idea that he that he returns to throughout the uh, prices chapter. So here it is: incentives matter because most people will usually do more for their own benefit than for the benefit of others. Incentives link the two concerns together. A waitress brings food to your table not because of your hunger, but because her salary and tips depend on it. In the absence of such incentives, service in restaurants in the Soviet Union was notoriously bad. So, it just goes to show how in a society where you don't have a profit and loss system, in a society, maybe with a base income, yeah. maybe with a heavily regulated, uh, mandated wage, what um, what incentive would a lawyer, a farmer, or well, first of all, what incentive would a person have to become a lawyer if there was no financial gain that they would get later on? Why would they invest? No, you know, they would never do it. Why would they invest, you know? Yeah, hey, you could speak on that, kid. <laughs> yeah, they would never do it. 
<laughs> difficult and yeah. a grueling process, and they, no one would ever yeah. Would through that. <laughs> yeah, and, and let's say they did. Let's say they did. Okay, they they go through law school. Um, they pass the bar. Um, how long is that process usually? I mean, you, it takes you three years to get through law school, and then you know you hope you pass the bar on the first time. So. Mm-hmm. Three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. So so let's say three and a half years, maybe four years takes you to get through everything. You're licensed in California. And let's say the government comes in and imposes a mandatory uh, annual income for all lawyers in California or in the United States for that matter. Or even work or even more applicable example, uh, let's say that instead of saying like an income for them, let's say they're only allowed to charge their clients uh, X amount of dollars. That's, that's, that's even better. Yeah. So yeah, th- their prices are mandated. Their prices are controlled. They have price, uh, price, what would you, what would you say that is? So price ceiling. Yeah. Even more real world example too, um, that I can totally see happening. Like Let's say that, uh, like a tort lawyer, like all of a sudden, um, anybody that's getting into an accident that makes less than $50,000, the uh, attorney's fees for that are automatically set at X amount of dollars. And so what I think that would probably do is no lawyers would go into the tort industry. Everyone would just, all of a sudden, there would be all this huge demand of lawyers and there would just be absolutely no one mm-hmm. out there actually providing the service. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you call that? The, the tort industry? Yeah. What, it, what is that exactly? So it, that's basically any like civil lawsuit is usually a tort. So let's say like you hit someone with your car, mm-hmm. that, that would be a tort. Okay. It's not a criminal act. But um, it would be considered like a negligent act. Okay, okay. So, so what you're saying is, let's say for anything like that, uh, there was a government-controlled price that um, attorneys were not allowed to go above in charging their clients. So then, what would be the incentive for that attorney to go the extra mile? In order to win that case, oh, there's no incentive at all. Because it would not—it's not going to affect how much money they're getting at the end of the day. I guess. I guess one one incentive could be reputation, you know. But then at the same time, what what incentive would would you have to have a good reputation? If no matter what, you're going to make the same income. Yeah, I think the real issue is that no one would go into the tort industry. Everyone would leave it. It's it, you know, let's compare it to something that we've seen in the book. Um, you know, they they talk about the New York and San Francisco housing market and how uh, nobody wants to be a renter in those areas because we have uh, these price controls, these price ceilings on how much people can charge for their rent in these areas and the idea is to create this better supply of housing when in fact it does the absolute opposite because now 
renters are going out of business because they can't afford to rent out to people. They're not maintaining their homes because it doesn't matter because everyone's paying the price anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that the, there was a crazy statistic in the New York example that he said that there were more boarded up rental homes than there were homeless people in New York. Wow. Isn't that an insane statistic? And he's attributing it to price controls because uh, all of a sudden there's this huge demand and people are actually, um, we, one of the main things he's saying is that people that don't need to be renting are still renting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like older citizens or really young people or really rich people might have several homes, several apartments because they can't rather than being weeded out by tougher competition and other people willing to pay. Exactly. Which uh, ultimately leads to a shortage. And uh, not just a shortage, but uh, wastefulness, you know, which in some cases is uh, sometimes worse when you just yeah. have an economy producing for the sake of production and... Um, people uh, misallocating these scarce resources. Yeah. I also really like what he talks about in terms of incremental value and incremental costs. And I think that that's something that everyone in their uh, life can focus a little bit more on. You know, it also goes hand in hand with uh, the concept that you've been talking about, the incentives versus goals. Mm-hmm. Right, because um, you know these incremental costs, incremental benefits. Like, if you get a dollar every single day, and you start adding interest to the dollar, it becomes a lot of money over time. And it's the same uh, concept here, where it's like you have to focus on the smaller things in order to get to the big goals. Mm -hmm. and, and I really like that uh, mindset. Now, um, the discussion of incremental, um, what did you call that again? For some reason, I, that's not ringing a bell. I, I can't recall that topic. That was when he was, what was he discussing? He was, he's discussing the uh, incremental substitution. That's the uh, page 77 there. Um, and basically, he's saying like, for how much something is valued, it's actually how much someone else would value it or how much um, it would cost for you to switch it out for some other good. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Right, so I see. Say that you buy, like, like how much, like whatever the candy, like candies costs. I yes. This would be a good example. It's like how much you would spend until you wouldn't want that candy anymore, that you would switch out for something else. Got it. I think he uses the example of apples. Like you're only going to eat so many apples. Um, here it is. A diamond maybe is worth worth much more than a penny, but enough pennies will be worth more than any diamond. This is why incremental trade-offs tend to produce better results than category categorical priorities. This goes to what I was saying before, where it's like if you only focus on large returns you're going to end up in the negative. 
But if you focus on smaller incremental returns, like for example, investing, I do a lot of investing and I've been uh, selling call options recently. Oh, really? Yeah. The return rate on each call option is really low. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like let's say I sell you a call. Yeah. You're going to pay me like 130 bucks to a premium in order to have the option to buy the stock from me. Now, in the grand schemes of grand scheme of things, 130 bucks isn't a lot over the course of like six weeks. Um, but if you do that, you know, ten times, all of a sudden that's a lot of money. And if you keep adding uh, that money to your portfolio, and all of a sudden instead of just getting 130, now I'm getting 260. Mm-hmm. Now I'm getting um, 520. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. Oh yeah, and. Um... I think that's a good segue into the next into the next topic, cool. which um, sort of reminds me of economies economies of scale. How a lot of the famous uh, names that you'll recognize, like uh, Rockefeller, Carnegie. All those guys, uh, the beginning of the uh, 20th century, and how they came to such wealth, and how they made so much money in their industries, and how they were so successful, and probably a majority, maybe not majority, but a good percentage of people in the public, if you ask them, you know, how they became so wealthy, some may think. You know, maybe out of greed or uh, from charging uh, high prices. Um, and what some people won't won't know is that the main reason they were so successful and acquired so much wealth was through uh, basically getting all the other customers within their industry to buy their products. And not their competitors' products, and how they did that was not through force. They, there was no law in place that required those people to buy, um, you know, let's say Ford, the Model T, Henry Ford's car. There was no law that said they had to, but yet everyone did. And why they did was because he was able to lower the cost, and basically outbid his competitors in the other in, in the car industry. And overall, through his uh, lowering of the costs, um, he became very wealthy, but just because he became wealthy doesn't mean other people were worse off. Out of his wealth and prosperity, everyone was made better off. Everyone was able to keep a larger percentage of their income and use it to a more efficient means. They were able to keep uh, more of their take-home pay uh, and, and not put it all towards a car. And um, the yeah, standard of living uh, across the board. Oh yeah, which is really cool. I think that uh, it's what they what I have here is a quote about um, reasons why some business owners succeed while others fail. Uh huh. And uh, I'm gonna kind of abbreviate it a little bit. Sure. Uh, but basically, he's just saying that 
even political elites, really in, intelligent people, uh, do not have such knowledge or insights. And what he really means by insights is intuition, how people are able to adapt and determine whether or not they should adapt to social changes, mm -hmm. technological changes, um, management changes. And what the uh, rise and fall of business chapter is really about is how businesses adapt to these kinds of changes. Because a lot of the businesses they talk about that fail, um, the owners end up being complacent and they're not able to readily adapt to the kinds of changing in the uh, economy or in their industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it, a really good example is the A&P's grocery chain. Yes. I had never even heard of them. Neither, neither had I. I didn't even know they were still around. He said they're still around. Apparently. Uh, but that's a really interesting one where they were the number one supermarket chain in the U.S. And then they didn't adapt to the fact that people were moving to urban neighborhoods mm -hmm. and owning vehicles. And so I think their business model was basically like, they had smaller stores yeah. in, in a ton of different places. And so they were just trying to tap into people that could walk there, carry their groceries back home. Yeah, just like corner stores. Yeah, kind of like liquor stores, I feel like. Um, but all of a sudden, competitors like Kroger and Safeway tap, like started making bigger businesses and... Uh, they realize that when people are driving to the supermarket, they're able to carry more back. And so per customer, they're able to you know, sell them $100 worth of products rather than $10 worth of products for, for 10 people. So per person, they were making a way better profit margin. And then I think the, the books talks about A&P's business model being that they were the number one business because they had the lowest prices, mm -hmm. all of a sudden they had to compete with these larger um, businesses that could that had better economies of scale, they had better profit margins because they were selling more goods per person, and so all of a sudden that their niche in the market, which was lower prices, was all of a sudden gone, and so they just got absolutely obliterated, and it's because their management was not quick to adapt or chose not to adapt yeah yeah uh i think that's a great point and it that was a great summary uh talking about that because the opening quote that he has for that chapter is actually this he says well this is a an excerpt from fortune magazine it, it reads failure is part of the natural cycle of business companies are born companies die Capitalism moves forward. And this really isn't something that I've thought of too much until reading this book. And um, kind of points to a lot of the, I guess you'd call them, economic fallacies that people have about the U.S. economy and about businesses failing, people losing jobs, and 
yeah, basically companies going out of business. Um, it's easy to look at to look at a company failing and maybe hundreds or thousands of people being put out of work temporarily as as a bad thing, as uh, something that's not good for the economy, and something that requires government intervention or maybe the government to subsidize that business in order to keep them afloat, in order to keep them in business. But um, it's actually healthy for them to fail. It's good for that competition. And if we didn't have that competition, then it wouldn't be beneficial for the majority of society, in which case, uh, is it A&P? They're called A&P, those stores? Yeah, through A&P closing down business, we then have Ralph's or Albertsons or Vaughn's or your your modern grocery store. And, it, and yeah. And to that point, uh, they were driving down prices. You know, A&P had the lowest prices at the time. Mm -hmm. Then Safeway and Kroger and all those other uh, larger companies came. Not larger companies, but uh, larger like buildings. Yeah. Uh, they change the business model and then they were able to have lower prices and so people benefit as a whole because now they're able to get more groceries at a lower price yeah and uh you know the economy improves because of that uh-huh and uh i think another really cool example that we should talk about briefly is the montgomery ward yes uh, and that's the catalog oh that's right they were a catalog company uh do you want to explain it Sure. Yeah. So, um, so they were a catalog, but, um, I think there was another business that was in place that was similar to them that, uh, yeah, yeah. And so basically this is like a, a revolutionary idea because, um, Montgomery Ward was a was a smaller smaller scale uh, business compared to uh, Sears. I think there was one other uh, major company at the time, uh, department store, and um, just like A and P, uh, these department stores, these big time companies, were able to cut prices and um, uh, attract a lot of consumers to purchase their goods. And then Montgomery Ward, Montgomery Ward came along and utilized the railroad system and they were able to deliver, uh, much like Amazon today, they were able to deliver goods that people would order through a catalog. They would mail in their order and then Montgomery Ward, Montgomery Ward would receive it, send out their goods nationwide directly to the customer. And that was a revolutionary idea. That that was something that had never been done before. Um, it cut a lot of the the cost for the business. Sort of cut the middleman, and um, it, it it didn't. It forced Montgomery Montgomery Ward to not have local department stores. They no longer needed the store the store in every neighborhood that they wanted to to sell in they could be based maybe in illinois and and sell to the entire midwest and then maybe have another 
distribution facility yeah. on the west coast and uh, cover that region. And it's pretty um, interesting how we're well, so like Montgomery Ward, um, basically, they were a mail order company first, and they were sending out people just like Amazon. You said, uh-huh. and then one of their own guys, Robert Wood, who was an executive. Apparently, he determined that because people were moving to urban, they were urbanizing. Yeah, that uh, a chain of urban department stores would be more effective and profitable than selling exclusively through mail order. Oh, okay. And they actually fired him for trying to change the company policy. Okay. But then other companies like Sears, their competitor, and J.C. Penney actually started these urban chain stores. Uh huh. And they ran Montgomery Ward out of business. Oh, but but it's a, it's pretty interesting how that's kind of like the Montgomery Ward model is kind of like the Amazon model now, and Amazon is obviously doing an incredible job, and so it's kind of interesting how we go through these ebbs and flows in the market where you know all of a sudden you know we want things to be delivered to us again, uh-huh. but you know Montgomery Ward was delivering their items to people and then all of a sudden people want to go to, to want to go into stores and now people want to get things delivered again yeah it's, it's an interesting how things kind of like move like that yeah yeah and <laughs> it's so it's so interesting that i actually in describing it got confused yeah so what i was describing was the opposite of actually what happened and that just goes to show how often the market changes <laughs> to where me yeah to where me recalling what happened so yeah what happened was what you said that was accurate so Montgomery Ward was the uh successful um mail order system and then yeah one of their one of their guys ended up uh changing it by um um, starting to build uh, local department stores, like we have today, and which are now which are now dying today because of Amazon. So it's it's funny how we're going back, back and forth, back and forth. And and you weren't totally uh, incorrect because they did say that. Um, where is it? Yeah. So. There's more. There's more to the story. There's more to the story. I think. Well, well they say right here um, that the Chicago Daily Tribune reported that mail order houses were driving rural stores out of business. So, um, you were right. Uh, I think that there was just a confusion about rural and urbanization, like urban stores. Yeah. Which was the, which was the actual difference here that made the made better. But it's like, you know. You and I, we grew up in this in, in urban society, so that's a hard distinction to really make. But the uh, what I really want to get out of that, uh, this chapter before we, we move on yeah. is that really it's, it's up to the management to make these kinds of decisions uh, for the sake of the company. Like you look at Montgomery Ward, you look at uh, A&P, and you see the exact same thing. Um, 
here, I'll, I'll read another quote here. Sure. Under any, under any form of economic or political system, those at the top tend to become complacent, if not arrogant. Convincing them of anything is not easy, especially when it is a new way of doing things that is very different from what they're used to. And uh, when I was working at American Express, uh, I did a, I spoke in front of the exec team that they had there, and one of their, one of the guys that sits on the board of directors actually asked uh, myself as well as the other interns a question about uh, why we thought that Blockbuster failed. And he explained to us how one day Netflix walks into Blockbuster and wants Blockbuster to buy them. And the board of directors of Blockbuster laughed them out of the room. And this was when Blockbuster was mailing people DVDs. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, Blockbuster has completely failed. And Netflix is, you know, reigning supreme. And that's the same concept that this chapter is trying to get at, where um, when management can't change with the times and I get basically metaphorically roll with the punches, uh, the company fails. You know, we look at social changes, we have economic changes, we have uh, technological changes. In, in the Netflix example, that's a technological change that they, they failed to address in time. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's also Kodak that they talked about. Um, it's, it's kind of funny how it's all about management at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's all about um, identifying those market factors and being able to change your business and adjust in order to um, attract those consumers and uh, fit your, your products or services and, and gear them towards those consumer preferences, what, what, what those people want. And um, with changing demographics, you know, even today, with much of the millennial population yeah. increasingly becoming uh, a majority of the uh, consumer market, um, it, it's evident, you know, things are changing. And in order for businesses uh, to remain successful, they're going to have to adapt. Um, or else, you know, they will fail and... That'll be kind of good, I guess, because that means that some other business will come along that is able to fit those preferences. Yeah, I mean, look at some of the social changes we're having today. I mean, uh, it wasn't until a few years ago that this whole health hype became a big deal. Now everyone's eating healthy. Now everyone's wanting want to be fit. Um, but like five years ago, we were fat America. I mean, we're still fat America, but... Yeah, like when you think of like... When you think of like 2005, 2006, 7, 8, like right around the time when that Super Size movie came out, yeah. I think that may have came out before then, but um, yeah, the, like, yeah, the early 2000s, I feel like were completely different. But now you go into a fast food restaurant and they have a healthy menu. Not only 
like their fast food actually, but like Chipotle is a good example. Oh yeah. It's like healthy, healthy fast food. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's not healthy or I shouldn't say that, even if it's not, um, you know, even if it's just like a burger and fries, you'll see that the burger is like, you know, a gourmet burger, grass-fed beef. Uh, they'll write that in the in the in the description. Avocado, arugula instead of lettuce. So, you know, does that really change the overall health content of the burger? I mean, it may, but by how much? Is that really, you know, affecting the health, or is that more just a, a preference that those companies are trying to fulfill? Right. That's definitely just um, seeing that there's this market that needs to be tapped that consumers are desiring healthier foods mm -hmm. so uh, they're moving into that and so that's a good example of where businesses are doing a good job where they're like you see mcdonald's changing and adding healthier options um, and so that's why they're the leader of their industry because they have a good management team cool well let's uh let's move to our last chapter here the role of profits and losses a role of profits and losses. Um, yeah, so the, the opening line, well, the opening quote, I like these opening quotes that he has. They're always really good summaries of the main idea. So this is, so this is a quote from John Stossel, and he's actually a host of a uh, Fox News uh, show. I don't know if it's still on the air. I used to watch it, but I haven't. I haven't seen it on cable recently. So maybe maybe it's on during the day. But anyways, um, goes like this: uh, Rockefeller got rich selling oil. He found cheaper ways to get oil from the ground to the gas pump. So I think that's a good summary because it identifies how simple some things are in the economy. And how, you know, Rockefeller, his main focus was just to find a way to uh, cut his cost and reflect that cost onto the consumer. But I'm going to stop right there in saying that because Thomas Sowell makes a few distinctions in this chapter on the difference between um, the difference when when um, producers of a good choose to pass along a cost onto the consumer or cut down their cost or absorb the profit or in absorbing their profit. I'm trying to recall that. I like that discussion that he had. I think that was later in the chapter, but um, that's what really, that's what really I, I took away from it. Uh, that was a really cool um, portion of the chapter. I remember that. So basically, um, if, like let's say they, gold gets a big tax on it, right? Like let's say you're a gold mining company and um, in Africa, and all of a sudden, the government decides to put a gold tax. Are you going to raise prices on the gold that you're shipping out to different countries? The answer is no, because if you did that, 
no one would buy your gold because everyone else's gold in the world would um, be cheaper. Mm -hmm. They don't have that tax because they're not in Africa. Yeah, yeah. And so in that situation, your company would absorb the costs. But there are other situations like, like let's say you came out with a technological advancement to produce cheaper milk. Mm -hmm. You... Uh, could reduce the prices of your milk and increase your profit margin. And if no one else had that technology, you would do that. Yes. Yes. But um, there were other examples that he gave where uh, you might not do that. Uh-huh. So, yeah, like let's say everyone had that technology and everyone was able to uh, decrease the cost of milk. Or not decrease the cost, but, um, yeah, decre decrease the company's cost of producing that milk. And if everyone had that technology, then the person who would gain the customer base would be the person that um, would pass that savings on to the consumer in reducing their prices that they charge for their milk. But in the case that you were describing earlier, if I was the only one that had that technology, then I could easily choose to not cut my prices and to keep them high, maybe even raise them. And... Um, still retain my customers because I'd be able to uh, produce a lot more milk at a lower cost than my competitors. Yeah, basically you have to compare what you're selling it for and what the, the competitors are selling it for mm -hmm. in order to determine that. I also liked uh, his, his topics about uh, the economies of scale and diseconomies of scale. I think that's uh, a really well-known and interesting topic where like the more you produce, the lower your per item cost is. Mm -hmm. For example, the, the Ford Model T. Yeah. Where, he, where they decided to build 100,000 cars and because they were able to do that, they were able to cut down the per car cost and effectively uh, you know, increase their business and be able to sell more cars because they were able to produce more uh, at a lower cost. Yeah, yeah. And then diseconomies of scale is sort of like a, like a tipping point. Yeah. Sort of, there was a term in one of the uh, UCSB economic theory courses I took and um, it, it, it sort of touched on this a little bit, wherein economies of scale are good up until a certain point. And up until that, that, that equilibrium, if you will, sort of tipping point. And you're basically your point of maximization. And any point after that, you're, you're, either, losing, you're either losing money um, well, you're losing money and either by producing too much or charging too low of a price with a certain amount of goods. I liked what they were saying about how uh, larger companies have this bureaucracy that uh, yes. yeah. they can't get anything done because they have to go through all of these levels of management in order to actually accomplish anything. Yeah. And my dad talks about that with other companies compared to Apple. 
and he says that Apple uh, tries to avoid the bureaucracy as much as possible and give and give uh, you know high management level people the ability to make decisions without having to go up this crazy corporate ladder to get approval for anything. Otherwise, nothing gets done. Yeah, that's great. I, I liked that uh, a lot. Um, that's great, and um, even in that. Even even in that case, um, with your dad's company, there still are um, some some pros and cons. I mean, it's great that they have a system in place in which they don't have to go through all the different levels of management. Maybe one manager of a particular uh, department is able to make a decision for that department. He doesn't have to go to any higher ups. But then at the same time. It's hard to have a core company um, uh, vision or mission statement, uh, set of goals and uh, objectives if you have all of these different managers in place. But then at the same time, if you don't have all these individual managers uh, making their own decisions, then you do have a lot of waste and a lot of wasted time in going through all those different um levels of management in order to make uh, a decision and so it, right. yeah it just goes to show how in any scenario there's always going to be benefits and costs and it's all about weighing those out and it's all about finding the tipping point and knowing when enough is enough and knowing when uh, basically to produce more or change your cost yeah and to that point I know that in, um, that companies try and have the uh, the goals and the mission run through the the management team and stuff like that. And some companies are better than it at it than others. But at the same time, like in a in a company like Apple, if, if you're in management and you're not going to hire up to make a decision, and your decision ends up blowing it, yeah, fine. yeah. But in a different situation where there was a corporate ladder, mm -hmm. um, and you had to go through several levels, and then they made your they approved your decision, you're not going to get fired for that. It's not your fault. It's, I mean, it depends on the situation, but it's un, it's less likely. Yeah, you're yeah. not the only one to blame in that situation. Yeah, you're right. So in many ways, the way your dad's system is set up is is much better because. Not only do they not have to go up that corporate ladder, but these managers they they know what the they know what the mission is. They know they you know they they have meetings, they have objectives, and so it gives them more incentive not to push through for a bad idea. Exactly, yeah, they have the incentive to you know make the right decision, and you know they they know they know what to do, and it, it keeps them in check. It's it's a nice it's a nice uh, a check. So, did you understand the, the costs and capacity section on page 125? Costs and capacity. Oh, that's funny you brought that up. That was, uh, that was confusing. It was confusing. They were talking about that the volume output. Um, what I thought was confusing. What was confusing was he didn't identify what capacity he was referring to. Talking about, but to the the costs also vary with to the extent that the capacity 
is being used. So he's using the, uh, I think it just all came to me. The, the cruise ship is an example of, okay, so we need to set our costs so that we can fill the cruise ship. Otherwise, you know, at peak times when every single cabin is, you know, at capacity, mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to, you know, manage that, right? Like you, you need X amount of workers to conduct and, and serve let's say the capacity is like a thousand people, right? Like I've never been on a cruise ship. I don't really know how many people would be on it. Let's say a thousand. Yeah. Um, and so you need to pay enough people to maintain a thousand people, cooks, servers. Um, you have to pay the fees for the ship, you know, all of those fees. And so what he's talking about here is, uh, in situations where they don't have peak seasons, like, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess in the fall or something, mm-hmm. um, they still have to maintain these costs. Mm-hmm. They have to try and uh, either raise ticket prices or attract other people. Yeah. And here again, they talk about the incremental costs and they have to determine, okay, are we going to um, reduce prices or are we going to pay less workers or like what's the deal here and they have to determine um, like a cost benefit analysis basically whether or not they uh, have to reduce prices or or not based on their you know less than ideal capacity yeah and um, I remember him discussing how they they targeted their marketing towards uh, senior citizens towards elderly folks who um, are able to travel and go on vacation during the winter months and uh, not the winter months, sorry, uh, during the off season months where uh, uh, students are in school, they're not able to go with their parents, families aren't able to go. um, Seasons like fall or maybe right after winter, early spring. And, um, yeah, that's that's the way that they're able to uh, to stay in business is by is by cutting the prices and giving those seniors a good deal. And um, yeah, I thought I thought that was really fascinating that discussion. That's not something that I've heard about much before. Another really interesting concept was the the bridge thing. The bridge. Oh yeah, the tolls. So, I what he's talking about there is um, at high uh, rush times, they have tolls, right? So people have to like pull over, pay the thing really quick, and move on. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of time for people to do that. And um, politicians like to reduce the tolls because. You know, everyday people don't want to be paying large sums um, during the times that they're going to be going to and from work. Mm-hmm. But the book talks about how that's the opposite of what they should be doing because if they had higher prices for their tolls, then people would be driving at different times and uh, it would reduce the amount of traffic at rush hour. It would. And then the people that 
Yeah, so I guess what could happen is the people that value that time the most um, would be willing would be willing to take that that toll and absorb that cost and they because they value their their time at that much and then the people who are on the road who maybe don't value it as much maybe someone who's retired and who's just trying to get into the city for the day or maybe someone who uh, you know doesn't have to get to work at a specific time um, someone who's just out for leisure um, maybe they'll stay home or maybe they'll use public transportation maybe they'll Maybe they'll take an Uber and maybe they'll, you know, they won't drive. Maybe they'll take side streets. So, yeah, it, it, it's all about allocating those scarce resources, which in this case is a road, one of those resources, uh, to the most efficient means and allowing the people that value it the most to uh, basically beat out the competitors. That's interesting. That's interesting. In this yeah. They're basically setting a price for it, um, and so it's it's not causing the most efficient way for people to determine whether or not they want to pay for the toll or not. Um, let's move on to the to the last thing we'll discuss, which is the specialization specialization and distribution topic. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll call it a night. Sounds so, good. This is was the hardest topic for me to read because I am so against specialization. Um, I really, I personally don't try to specialize at all. I mean, if you look at what I'm doing, I'm getting, yeah, I got two completely separate degrees. I'm trying to be as broad as possible. Uh -huh. But, but here, Soul talks about specializing that it's, it's a really good thing and it, it makes the difference between successful businesses and, and unsuccessful businesses and so I wonder if it's, it's probably applicable to people too uh, I've been thinking about like what my specialization is going to be and I have no idea mm -hmm. but um, you know people that specialize make tons of money but you know do you really want to get pigeonholed where you're doing the same thing for the rest of your life mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, I, um, I think that's interesting. And I think in your case, or in someone's case like you, that's, that's very common. Um, I, I, for someone to get a master's in business and also acquire a JD, um, I, I've noticed that in looking at company websites and company bios of of uh, executives or even even professors at universities often you'll see um, you know an economics professor that has a PhD in econ and they also got a JD at another university or, or maybe they got their BA in I don't know philosophy something unrelated yeah. and then they ended up getting an MBA so th there's I feel that there's a connection between business, law, economics, teaching. They're interrelated. But um, I think when it comes to producing goods or even in, in, in the differences between countries producing different types of goods, that uh, specialization is very important. And I, I think that 
So when I think of specialization, I think of nations, differences between maybe states or nations or cities. Um, I think of it in more of a sense of, of trade. And uh, I think in here, he, he's talking more, uh, sort of more of a micro sense rather than a macro sense in the way I think of it. Yeah, yeah, I can see how you're thinking about it because yeah, you know, just like your example the other day with the sugar made from different areas, like California shouldn't be producing sugars. Yeah, uh, but they continue to do that because of their um, you know economic policies, and so if we have specialization, uh, which is the ideal situation in in allocating scarce resources. Yeah, we have different areas making sugar and then everyone benefits as a whole uh-huh especially when those areas are the most ideal climates for, for producing those goods yeah exactly yeah, allowing people that people that are the best at producing bicycles to produce bicycles and people that are best at producing another type of good to produce the tires, maybe people that are good at producing tires. Yeah, he even talks about that. Yeah, the, yeah, he does. Yeah, the he general. Tires. Yeah, how how no car manufacturer produces tires, which sounds funny because that's such a essential part of a car. Yeah. But then when you think about it, it's like no, every tire is either Michelin or uh, Good Goodyear or you know one of the other uh, lower end companies. But they. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a perfect example of specialization. Uh, you know, you know, yeah. you know when something is wrong when you look to the Soviet Union and see what they did. <laughs> he he provides a really good example of how the Soviet Union many enterprises produce their own uh, components. Yeah, even though specialized producers of such components. Uh, existed and can ma- manufacture them at lower costs. Yeah, yeah. Always a great example of what not to do. Yeah, whenever whenever you see the word uh, so or the, the the yeah the two words Soviet Union, you know he's he's making a uh, a bad example. He's yeah. it's never a good example. It's never like okay. This is this is here. Here's an example of specialization. It's always the opposite of what the topic is. It, here's what not to do, and uh, I, I like how he has um, somehow he has like an inside scoop on Soviet economists, yeah. but they're never mentioned. Yeah, it's always like really vague. Like, uh, oh, two uh, two Soviet economists. Here's what they had to say about. Uh, distribution in their country and it's not really a it's like kind of like a quote but not really it's not it's not cited but he even talks about that at the beginning of the book he says how um this book includes no sources and no footnotes but he has all of the sources and footnotes on his website did you read that do you remember reading that i do i did i remember that yeah so i think i'm gonna go on the website and find out who these uh who these soviet economists are and why they and why they weren't uh, imprisoned? <laughs> yeah, that's a Who knows? Point. Maybe they maybe they were. Maybe they're. Uh... They finally got out, and they wrote a book about how bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Uh, you know, that was 
everything we read for for this week and um we learned a lot that was quite a bit of information yeah that was great and uh next week we'll have chapter seven eight nine so we got the economics of big business chapter seven that should be good then we got chapter eight. Ooh, okay all right kit maybe you can uh enlighten us we got regulation and antitrust laws cool. regulation and antitrust laws i actually don't know much about antitrust laws but i always hear it um and then the last one market and new market economies yeah oh that'll be oh these are cool these are really like specific topics now that we're getting into sort of the middle of the book we're really digging in we're getting a little more um specific with the chapters yeah this is going to be a, a good segment next week uh with uh mike and kit yeah mike and kit thanks for uh thanks for tuning in folks hope you enjoyed this uh this past hour yeah just over an hour hour five perfect yeah this is perfect we'll uh, see you all next week yeah see you next week